Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find Colossians chapter 1. I'd like to give you my Christmas present to you this year. I know, I know you don't need anything and you're so hard to buy for. I, I thought I would just wrap it up in a special sermon. I, I, you ready for it? I'm going to preach one verse today. <laughs> one verse. Now, if you're new to Church at the Mill, I want you to know that has no correlation to the length of the sermon. <laughs> Not one. But actually, it just might. Paul, the apostle, spent most of his life after being saved as a missionary or a prisoner. And one of his missionary journeys, he was ministering in a city called Ephesus. When he was in Ephesus... He led a man to Christ named Epaphras. Epaphras was not from Ephesus. Epaphras was from Colossus. Some people pronounce it Colossae. So most people believe Epaphras came to Christ in Ephesus, left, went back to his home, and did what Christians are supposed to do. He shared what Christ had done for him. And as he shared, people responded to the gospel. And as people responded to the, to the gospel, a church was born. That's what a church is. A church is a gathering of people who are God's people, who are saved, born again, redeemed. This is what the church is. And this church that we know today as the church at Colossae, or Colossae as some would say, this church had some amazing movements of God in it, but one of the early struggles was that it became susceptible to some false teachers who began to question whether or not Christ was enough. The sufficiency of Christ. Did God give his people everything they needed when he gave his people his one and only son? Now, this, of course, happened in the first century. By the time we get to the second century, after the New Testament has long been completed, it became a full-blown false teaching. Another word for that is a heresy. It became a full-blown heresy called Gnosticism, which really separated the physical life from the spiritual life and basically said you can do what you want to with your body. That doesn't matter as long as you connect on some higher spiritual level with the God you attribute all of this to. None of that's Christian. The early signs of it, though, most people believe are exactly what the church in Colossus was struggling with. This idea of being infatuated with everything spiritual except the Son of the living God, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to the Bible, has everything we need for spiritual wholeness and truth and strength and direction and, of course, from beginning to end, salvation. So Paul wrote the book of Colossians to basically say, when you got all of Christ and Christ gets all of you, you have all that you need. And one of the beautiful ways that he does this is by including this poetic treatment of the identity of Jesus Beginning with the two words you see on the screen, he is. Read those two words with me, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to read aloud as you read silently down through verse 20. 
Paul begins the book of Colossians with a greeting and a prayer. And then when we get to verse 15, he turns his attention toward the risen Lord Jesus. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then we come to our one and only verse today, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to read verse 18 one more time to you. It is our text today. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We decided during this Christmas season as we celebrated the Advent that we would take this simple little paragraph and spend about a week per verse looking at all that he is. And this morning, I want to talk to you about who he is to his people. One of the things that you have happen in our culture is that most people associate a part of their Christmas celebration with church. Several years ago, LifeWay re re released a, a survey that found when asking people who were unchurched, people who did not attend a weekly church service, if someone you know invited you to attend church with them at Christmas time, how likely would you be to attend? Surprisingly, almost six out of ten unchurched people said, you know what, during Christmas, I'd go. We see that. In fact, it used to be that Easter, we saw our greatest number of first-time guests or people coming to the church who aren't normally here. But actually, over the course of December, and especially during our special Christmas services, as we enjoyed last Sunday night, as we will enjoy on Christmas Eve, we will see the highest population of guests and visitors who come during the Christmas season. This is the time of the year where secular radio stations openly and willingly play the classic Christmas songs, and many of them openly proclaim the truth of the nativity, the truth of the advent. They talk about Christ coming to the world. And so it is, if you will, a pro-church time in our culture. But also, I don't know that I've ever read more articles and more journalism about the problems in the church as I read today. I read terms like worship wars and toxic culture and church hurt and Christian nationalism, church split. Some people criticize small churches and accuse them all of dying. Others criticize mega churches and say, well, they've become so corporate and impersonal. Still others say, well, churches have become woke. Well, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, churches become so legalistic. Nobody can get in. It's us four and no more. And when we look at all those terms, we find that there are a growing number of people who would have Christianity in their background, who now seem to be rather ad adversarial toward the church. They have a bad taste in their mouth. They have experienced church 
hurt or someone in leadership has let them down. And, and in reality, churches do fail. Churches can cause great pain. Individuals inside the body of Christ can and do hurt one another. And it hits on a different level when people that you love and trust or people that you worship beside say or do things that are inconsistent with what you believe they should say or do or how they should treat you. And it is with those two ideas, on one hand, everybody's thinking about church this time of year, and on the other hand, we know that in a post-Christian culture, there are many people who at one point identified as a Christian who have a low view of church that verse 18 bursts from the pages of this paragraph. Because no sooner has Paul established that he is the image of the invisible God, that God dwelt in the flesh, that Jesus became man. This miracle of miracles called the incarnation. Remember the quote I gave you from Wayne Grudem last year about the incar excuse me, last week about the incarnation? The incarnation, according to this gifted theologian who certainly had a great deal of influence on my life, is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. And he defends his position. He says, Far more amazing than the resurrection or more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. And for you and I, in the course of our culture and our calendar, we celebrate that incarnation the most at Christmas. And we often celebrate it in church. It's common to celebrate Christmas in church. It's uncommon to celebrate the church in Christmas. That's what verse 18 does. No sooner has Paul stressed the deity of Jesus and how it is through Christ that all things were made by him and for him that he turns his attention toward the new creation. You see, verses 15, 16, and 17 really address creation. But we know creation is marred by sin. We know that this big, beautiful world that God created and that afterwards he looked and said he was well pleased. And that Adam and Eve made in his image that God created for fellowship, for unity, and really for the display of his glory, rebelled against him. And we know that all creation has this tension of beauty and grandeur and glory and the declaration of a creator and rot and sin and sorrow and death. In fact, Paul would say to the Roman church, all creation is groaning for a redeemer. We know a redeemer came, and we know that he ushered in not only the first creation, Genesis 1-1, he ushered in the second kingdom, which is why after establishing Christ being God in the flesh over, through, and to all things, that he turns his attention toward the work of Christ for his people. And to his people, he is everything. He's everything. That's what verse 18 says, literally. Verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in, literally translated, everything, he might be preeminent. 
What does it mean to dwell on Christ in relationship to his people? Let me tell you a common denominator among those who express very little loyalty to the church. A common denominator among those who do not place a priority on being engaged and connected to a church. It almost always manifests itself in some form of criticism. Either they criticize themselves and say, you know, I should be there. I should be involved. I should engage. I, I should serve. I should tie that. Preacher, I, I know better. Or they criticize others. Oh, I went there. He said this, and she said that, and I went through this, and I went through that, and I didn't feel like I was loved or connected. And by the way, there may be truth to both of those. Again, we struggle sometimes with our commitment, and I can assure you if you're around people long enough, not only will you fail them, they will fail you. But what is missing is very telling. What always happens when a believer becomes disenfranchised, disconnected, or just discouraged about the church is that they're beginning to lose sight of who's in charge of the church. They have a low view of Christ's love and his headship over the church. And so verse 18 teaches us three very simple truths I'd like to give you. In regards to Christ and his church, it's important for us to understand first his position. Paul does not say he's the governor, he's the president, he's the leader. He said he's the head. Now, the reason Paul says he's the head is because Paul has long since already introduced in previous letters that backdrop Colossians the metaphor of the body. And the reason Paul used the metaphor of the human body is because of what he wanted to communicate about the church. The church is not, first and foremost, an organization, though we want to be organized. The church is not, first and foremost, a society, though we do have norms and rituals and patterns that you could say form us into a group of people. The church, first and foremost, is a living, active body. And one thing I know about any body that's alive and active, somebody has to be in charge. And the great news is, is that Christ is the head of his body. Now, why? And why should Christians understand this? I think it's very important, especially in a day and age where we see leaders be extraordinarily faithful and some unfaithful. We have people in churches and denominations who seem to be fighting hard to hold on to the Scriptures and the truth of the gospel, and others who are quickly moving to redefine what church is by the whims of the culture or what's popular. It's important to always gauge the church, not first and foremost by what we see physically, but by who is the head spiritually. If Christ is the head of the church, what does he provide? Well, it's rather obvious but it's good review. First, he's the source of the power. I mean, think about how the physical body works. Even the most gifted athlete can be debilitated if they suffer a concussion. That concussion doesn't directly weaken their bicep or their 40 time, but if the head is not operating correctly, the rest of the body has no power, no motion, no balance, no ability to react, no movement in a direction 
that is planned, organized, and intentional. Go back with me to some more familiar passages. So Jesus leaves the stable with his parents. They flee to Egypt. They come back, and he's raised in Nazareth. And then he begins his public ministry approximately at the age 30. For about 36 months, think about how short that is. For about three years, Jesus teaches, reaches, heals, moves. And then he enters into Jerusalem at Passover in his 33rd year, and he's crucified for the sins of the world. He then, of course, is raised to life by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. He came into the world through a womb. He left the world through a tomb. Both were borrowed. And then he ascends. But before his ascension, he gives the church, not the world, not people who have an affinity toward Christianity, the church, a commission. But how does that commission begin? You know it as the Great Commission. You've often memorized it. Go ye therefore and make disciples. But look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Now, this all is very important. In fact, in our passage this morning, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, the word all keeps happening over and over and over and over again, meaning there's none left out. Did you eat all the cookies or did you leave one? If you say, yes, I ate all the cookies. There are no more cookies in the cookie jar if you ate them all. Try to eat most of them. Don't eat all of them. You may have a problem, right? So, all authority. Why did he say that? Look what he says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But wait, pastor, you're the 11 o'clock worship service. You've had exactly a half a pot of coffee. Some of you can tell right now. You're squirming. You're thinking deep. You're thinking why would something have to be given to Jesus if you taught us last week that he was preeminent and preexistent and then he produced all things? That's the outline from last week. And that he produced all these things. If he was before all things and created all things and by him all things were created and they were created for him, through him, and to him, why would he be in want of anything? The definition of receiving something because someone else gave it to you meant that before they gave it to you, you did not have it. Therefore, they gave it to you. The reason that Jesus was given authority is because of Christmas. At his incarnation, as deity emptied into humanity, as Christ took on flesh, he laid down his authority and took on the form of a man. I mean, for example, there were certain attributes of God that Christ did not have or operate in while he was on earth. He wasn't, for example, omnipresent. If he wanted to go from Nazareth to Galilee, guess how he got there? He walked. He wasn't in all places at all times, which is why when you read about his life, he went here, he went there, he grew weary, he ate, he wept, he cried, he smiled, he laughed, he spent time. At times he had to sleep. And so Jesus experienced the full weight of what it meant to be a person and the full limitations of what it meant. Of course, he still had divine power, but much of his divine authority he willingly handed over. In fact, you know and I know that the only reason he was on that cross is not because of those nails, but because of his obedience 
to the Father, which is why there's this great wrestling match spiritually in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is dealing with the weight of what's about to happen. In fact, what is already happening as the Father begins to lay upon him the sins of the world, he who knew no sin became sin, and he's in anguish over it. Why is he in anguish over it? Because he is fully man while also being fully God. And therefore, he laid it down to the point you can't lay anything else down. When will the moment come when you have nothing else to give? I'll tell you when. It's uh, not a warm and fuzzy feeling, but it is true and candor requires my honesty. The moment when you have nothing else to give, when you cannot whisper a prayer, when you cannot offer a smile, when you cannot hug a neck, is at your death. At your death, everything else that happens to your body has to be done by someone else. There are professionals who will prepare your body for death or for burial and for cremation. You can do none of those things. He laid his authority down all the way to the point that it cost him his life. And upon his resurrection, all authority was given to him, including having finished the work God ordained him to do in eternity past. And so, then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice that he does not say, for you and me to go do the work of Christ. I cannot save anyone. I cannot move in your heart spiritually. God can use you to minister to me. God could use your example or something you say to me or your faithfulness to influence my heart. But I cannot, nor can you work by my own volition spiritually in your life. All we can do is proclaim and show the love of Christ to one another, which is why we are never told to make Christians. Never. We're told to make disciples out of the people that God saves. Well, what do you do with a disciple? The first thing you do is you tell them to go public with their faith. How do you go public with your faith? You're baptized. The second thing you do is teach them how to honor the Lord. In fact, if you knew everything you needed to know the day you got saved, then the Lord would take you home the day you got saved. But the Christian life on this side of heaven is for two reasons. One, to enjoy and bring glory and honor to Him. And two, to leverage your life to see others come to know Him. This is why a Christian's experience of sanctification is inwardly and outwardly learning and conforming and submitting and growing into being what God has already declared you to be eternally. This is the great yes but not yet tension of the Christian life. And so you teach. And just when you think this sounds impossible, looks how it ends. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But where did it begin? It did not begin with strategy or buildings or doctrines or seminaries, pastors, teachers, elders, bishops. No, no, no. It began with the power that is only in Jesus, which is why when Christ commissions the church, just a few pages over in Acts 1-8, look what he literally says. You will receive power. You won't receive everything you need to know all at once. You won't receive beautiful buildings, stained glass windows, you won't receive well-written, well-articulated doctrines initially. Power. Where will you receive power? In the person of the Holy Spirit. Why does the Holy Spirit empower the Christian life? I'll tell you why. Because the Spirit of God is God in you 
which could not happen until sin was taken away from you. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. So the shedding of blood by Christ opens you up to accessing the power of Christ who is his Holy Spirit. And then you will be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the power for our church to even exist is Christ. Were no Christ involved, we could have an organization and a building and a cause. We might have a well-polished website. We may have some goals and objectives, but we would not have any spiritual power. This is the thing I think about when I think about you. Several years ago, I read a quote that continues to call me to prayer when I think about us. A guy said 85% of everything that happens in a church nowadays could happen whether or not the Lord showed up. It's also been said that the American church, especially churches like us, our problem is we're over-organized and under-agonized. At the end of the day, I praise God for the facility. I praise God for the plans, the dreams, the budgets, the strategy, the incredible team of leaders, both volunteer and paid staff. I praise God for every man walking around this campus right now with a radio we bought with your money to keep us safe. I praise God for every children's volunteer who's been trained and vetted and background checked. I I praise God for every one million goldfish that will be given out this morning. I appreciate all the tools that he's given us, and I wouldn't change any of that. But I sure would like for all that to always happen alongside individual, ordinary members like you who are agonized for the power of God to sit down in this place. And I just challenge you, 2024, to spend a little more time spiritually preparing for Sundays. Maybe get up an extra few minutes so that you're able to get here unrushed. Maybe be a little bit more diligent on Saturdays so that you're better prepared, so that you can get here in time to enjoy your delicious coffee order. But get in here, get seated, and start praying for God to move. I am powerless up here. I have no ability to change anyone's life. But all power is given to the head of our church. And he loves us and wants to use our lives to honor him. But not only does the head mean that we get power from him, it also means that we form our identity. We're his possession. When you you think about the idea of the power of God, then you also think about protection. He gives us his protection. What did he tell Peter when Peter made this great claim of Christ and the gospel? He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on the rock I will build my church, this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Anytime I find someone who seems to have a sour taste in their mouth for church, I'm reminded of what the Savior has done for the church. And I think about you and your life. There's not a man in this room that I care about and love, who I would ever think it would be acceptable to walk into his presence and begin to demean, degrade, or disrespect his bride. 
At the end of the day, we're all adults, and I recognize that my wife, like your wife, like your wife's men, lives in a world where people are, are always going to treat her fairly. I, I get that. And I know that we should not be adversarial people, and we certainly should not want to be people who want to be involved in a conflict. If I'm ever out in public and there's conflict, I certainly want to do anything I can to resolve it, and I don't believe Christians should walk around with a chip on their shoulder. We ought to be humble. We ought to be meek. We ought to be kind. We ought to always look, work for resolution. But if you disrespect, disregard, or bring harm to my bride, we are not going to be friends. We're just not. I may have to love you in Christ, but I can call on the Holy Spirit to stop me from throat punching you because that's what I want to do. And yet, the Lord says, my church is my bride. That's my bride. I chose her. I came to redeem her. She's beautiful, and I love her. I'm well aware of her faults. I know exactly where her warts are. I know all the things she struggles with, but I'm coming back to get her. And when I do, I'm going to deliver her into a new heaven and a new earth, and I will set her free from the curse of sin I've already saved her from. A couple centuries, excuse me, about a century ago, Spurgeon said it this way. And I think he said it best. The church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church, and let us do the same. <laughs> this wise preacher said, I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can. And I have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all because he covers her faults with his own love, that love which covers a multitude of sins, and he removes all defilement with that precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of his people. To get angry and to get bitter and to turn against the church and to walk away from her is to disregard and disrespect the Savior who died to redeem her. The head also means that in addition to protection, there's providence. Everything south of my neck is told what to do by everything north of my neck. I mean, think about it. There is no organ in the human body more valuable to life. Even you may say the heart, which of course is vital, can be transplanted. We can cut that baby open and do work on it. We can replace valves. We can do bypass surgery. They can revive it. But when the brain is dead, they're often almost always is no hope. And very seldom, very seldom does a massive brain injury have someone make a full and total recovery. In fact, there are many organs in the human body that can be operated on, manipulated, and even transplanted. But I have yet to read of a brain transplant. I got some people in my life, I'm signing them up for it when it happens, but I haven't read of it yet. And yet, when we think about Christ being the head of the body, we find that means that he provides the body with the direction and the discernment that it needs. I mean, think about how Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians when he gives us our assignment. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is what? The head 
into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So from the head means my identity and direction. So his power, secondly, leads to us being his possession. Notice the phrase in verse 18. And he is the head of the body. It's not anybody. It's the body. The body connected to a head. I know a lot of bodies. I've known a lot of somebodies. I'd like to think that we are somebody. I can meet anybody, and I would say nobody is a nobody. But my head was only attached in the womb of my mother to one body. My body is all my head has ever known, and my head is all my body has ever known. And to remove the two means instant, instantaneous, immediate, imminent death. So his authority forms our identity. His power means we are his possession. Think of it in three ways when you think about the body of Christ, especially around Christmas. We're concrete and connected. Let me tell you who I've never seen, Jesus. Never seen him. Never spoke to him where he spoke back to me in an audible voice. Pray to him all the time. Certainly have felt him move in my heart. Have watched his words jump out of a page and speak to me. Hadn't heard an audible voice voice of the Lord. I have some friends who would say, you can hear an audible voice of God. I can just tell you, I have not heard that, and I don't believe that is the biblical pattern. But guess what I have seen, touched, felt, heard all my life? His body. In fact, I was thinking about the churches of my life. Shady Grove Baptist Church, where I was saved and baptized, rural community, nowhere Alabama. Aldridge Baptist Church, the second church my dad pastored after my salvation. Small church, lower income, lower middle class community. Then Parkway Baptist Church in Auburn, Alabama, where for the first time I sat under a trained expositor and he walked through the Bible verse by verse and God lit my heart on fire for that. And then Edgewater Baptist Church in New Orleans, Louisiana, where I was a Sunday school teacher and I enjoyed teaching Sunday school. I was really good at the teaching part. I kind of lost focus when people would ask me to pray for their cat's kidney infection. I ain't into all that. But I'll teach you the Bible. But, but then... But then Anderson Mill Road Baptist Church, Lord and I joined here as young parents years and years ago. And every stop along the way represents real people that I touched and shared meals with and wept with and prayed with and smiled with and that they spoke into my life. And ultimately, that's why we're called the body. We're all the Jesus that Spartanburg's going to see until he returns. In fact, I heard it said, and I think it's worth repeating, the problem in our community is not that people need to hear about Jesus. They've heard. They need to see him. And I don't mean him visibly, though one day we look forward to it. I mean they need to see people follow him. They need to see people trust him. They need to see people live out the gospel that is so available in our community yet seems to disconnect from so many people. There's a second thought. Body means we're diverse and dependent. My hand cannot do what my spleen can do. My spleen knows nothing of my thyroid's function. My thyroid cannot do what my heart can do. Yet I know from my experience in biology and from my friends in medicine 
that there's an interconnectivity and an interdependence of every part of the body. This is why you may look around and inventory your gifts and say, there's so many people at our church that seem to have so much more to offer than me. That's not disrespecting yourself. That's disregarding what Christ has said. Christ did not call you to feel sorry for yourself because of the giftedness of other people. He called you to enjoy the full gift of his Holy Spirit and manifest itself in all of the gifts that God has given you to serve those around you. In fact, the people that are most attractive are the people who can willingly celebrate the giftedness of others but don't get hung up on it so much so they never find and use their giftedness. But rather, they find themselves in a position where they say, this is what I can do. This is what I have. This is Christ in me. And then we find the alive and the active. You know, there's an untold number of things that can be done to the body as long, it is, as long as it is alive. But the minute it's dead, the only thing we do is prepare it for burial or cremation. When we think about the church, he didn't call us an organization or a society because we are alive. We're moving. We're active. We're going somewhere. And you know what I know on day one of human anatomy, the one requirement of every living person is they must have a head. Without a head, anything alive becomes dead. But with a head, you have movement and direction. So we have his power, we have his possession, and finally, we have his preeminence. Look how the phrase ends in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The beginning of what? I love this. There's a parallel between verse 18 and verses 15 and 16. We see same language. He was the beginning of creation. Guess what he's the beginning of? A new creation. He was the beginning of the old kingdom. Guess what he's the beginning of? The new kingdom. He was the beginning of the first man. Guess what he'll be the beginning of? Any man or woman who is born a second time, which is why Jesus said, you must be born again. So he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, it's already said previously, we dealt with it last week, that he was the firstborn of all creation. And we talked about how he's the heir, he's prime, he's primacy, he is the supreme. But the firstborn from the dead is new phraseology. Not because Jesus was the first person to be born. That's ludicrous. Read your Old Testament. Thousands, perhaps millions of people lived before Jesus. And it's not that Jesus was the first person to die. Every one of those people that lived before Jesus died before Jesus, except, of course, those who were alive during his life. And Jesus is not the first person to be raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised men like Lazarus from the dead. But you seen Lazarus walking around lately? I have not. Do you know what happened years, perhaps decades later? He died again. He decomposed. He is no more. His spirit is with the Lord. His remains have long since broken down due to the way in which the body decays. So even his resurrection, as miraculous as it was, was certainly a short list of something better, a short taste of something better, a way in which to see something that is, if you will, just a glimmer of a bright light that's coming. So how is Jesus first born from the dead? Well, he came into the world through a womb like you and me. 
And he left the world through a tomb like you and me. Because Jesus is the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again. In fact, this is what he says. He says, you want to know why you're going to live forever? Here's what the world would say. The world would say, well, yeah, I believe there's an afterlife. You're going to live forever because you're a good person. You try to do right by your neighbor. Others may say, well, you're going to live forever because you obey these religious tenets. Uh, You operate in this ritual uh, society. Some would say, hey, we all live forever. And then some would say, pure atheists would say, none of us live forever. We're just highly evolved apes. We're here, and then we exist no more. Here's the Christian answer. I'm going to live because he lives. That's it. In fact, that's what he said in the book of John. He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. That's a nice way of saying, I'm going to die. But you will see me. Another way of saying, I'm resurrecting. And then look what he says. Because I live, you also will live. The only reason I have hope for eternity is because I know the one who's already there. And he got there the same way I got there. I'm going to go through a grave unless he returns, and he went through a grave. But just like the womb of Mary was borrowed, the tomb of Joseph was borrowed too. It could not hold him. This is why Paul told the Corinthian believers, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There were people questioning the resurrection. And then notice what he says, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That's a nice way of saying he's the first one back from the dead never to die again. But notice what the chronology suggests. If you say something is first, you are implying by default it's not only. If there's a first, there must be a second and a third in the sequential order from that. He's saying he's just the first one that God raised from the dead. He ushered us into the grave, and he will usher us out of the grave. Which is why Paul says, For as by man came death, and by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. I think about John. You remember John recorded those words that Jesus said, because I live, you will live. He ended up beaten alone, left to die on Patmos. And the Bible says on the Lord's day, he was worshiping Revelation 1, and the Lord appeared. And this is how John described the risen, glorified, ruling Lord Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) But He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. In the Greek, that's alpha and omega. That's where you get that phrase from. And the living one. Notice the beautiful language here. John said, I fell down as dead. Jesus said, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be dead. I live. And then Jesus says, I died. This is so important because people who tend to deconstruct from their faith, who tend to chip away at the church, start with the church and end up chipping away at Christ. And then they reduce him to this incredible 
miraculous, divinely inspired rabbi whose life we are to emulate. Yes, emulate the Lord Jesus, but I'm not going to heaven because I got it right all the time. I'm going to heaven because he died and rose again. You cannot take that away from the gospel. And Jesus, in introducing himself to John yet again, said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, firstborn from the dead, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You are locked, humanity. You are locked in a destiny of death, but I've got the keys, and I live. And so when the church sees him for that, we then, like Paul, say, He's just the best thing we've got. He's all we need. And if we are a body, he is the head. And if he says go, we should go. And if he says tell, we should tell. And if he says sacrifice, we should sacrifice. And even if he costs, he asks us to pay our life. He's worth it. Because he said, John, because I live, you will live. Church family, I want you to celebrate Christmas in church, but I also want you to celebrate the church in Christmas. Be high church people. I don't mean stuffy, holier than thou, judgmental. I mean people that have such a grandiose view of our Savior that we love His church. Men, do your little boys see by your life and your commitment that you love the church as much as you love your favorite sport as much as you love your time away from work as much as you love your hobbies mama do your children know you love the church more than you love their academic career their artistic career their athletic do your neighbors know you're always available if they need you? But on Sunday morning, you're not at home. Barring sickness or travel, you're here. Not because you believe your attendance is going to earn your way into heaven, but because you have such a great view of the Savior. How could you not want to be with his people and then go out and help his people? accomplish what he has given us even in just a few moments when we close with a bit of business I think about all the organization and the decisions and the work what I think about most is Bobby and Becky I buried Miss Becky yesterday she was a saint she's with Jesus today she was not perfect she was saved and her life showed it she taught Sunday school for many 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 years and served many churches that she was a part of. We just happened to be the last church that she made her church family. I called her husband, Bobby, the day after she died. Our pastors were with her. They administered to her, but I wanted him to hear my voice. I said, Bobby, I just want you to know I'm on my way to work this morning, and I love you. He said, Pastor, I was having a quiet time today, and I just praised God for 57 years with her. Two things hit me right between the eyes. Number one, this brother's wife died less than 24 hours before this phone call and he still got up and had his quiet time second thing there was no bitterness or anger certainly hard sorrow but he said 
God gave me 57 years with her, and she's so much better off now. The interesting thing is, in just a moment, when you see this year's deacons that you will affirm if you choose to, you'll see Bobby's picture there. He's a senior adult, nominated by people in his class, like every man, vetted, interviewed, mentored, ready to go. He served as many many years as a deacon. He'll be wonderful. But I put my arm around him yesterday as we walked out, having preached her funeral. And I said, Bobby, I know tomorrow we're going to have a little vote, but, you know, we won't think a thing in the world if you want to wait, not serve this year. You've been a widower for two days. He said, preacher, I'll do whatever you say. I said, well, that's not my decision. Remember, Jesus is in charge. I'm not. In fact, if you're ever mad, remember, I'm not in charge. He said, but if it's all the same to you, I'd just rather serve my church. I'll be glad to come on as a deacon if you think I can help. That's a man who understands the church in Christmas. He's the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead, the beginning. And in him, all preeminence Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to be reminded of your great church. I love your church. Lord, I'm so grateful that your church was bought with a price, given the opportunity to be a people who were not a people, and now we have been transformed, as Peter said, into a nation of priests, making good news of a good king with a good story to a world so in need of salvation. Lord, we are coming down the wire in 2023 and much of the years behind us. And while we want to remain faithful over these last few weeks, I'm especially asked the people in this room to join me in praying that we would be a faithful church in 2024. That we would be a people faithful to you as our head and our leader. Thank you that you came and dwelt among us, that you entered this world through a womb, and that you left this world the same way Becky did, through a tomb, and then you rose again, never to die. And because you live, all in Christ will live as well. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'm just going to say amen in just a moment. But before I do, I want to say this. If you don't know the hope that Becky Wilkins had. If you don't know the hope that John Dunn had, another brother I buried a few days ago. If you don't know the hope that Malin and Nancy Bailey had, a precious couple that died 10 days apart just a few weeks ago. If you don't know that hope, don't you leave this campus. Go to our prayer room and say, I want to nail this down. I want to know that my hope is secure. Father, even now, as we conclude with just a bit of business, I pray we'd be reminded that to even have a budget, to have leaders, to have things like bylaws is a picture of your grace on our church that you've given us. Thank you for such a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.